0: To the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott, and I'm the assistant editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version, or $60 for print plus online. Do you love fine music, good company, and great food? This October, why not join Limelight Arts Travel on their 15 day tour of opera and song in northern Italy? The unique itinerary is built around seven memorable performances at venues including La Fenice in Venice, La Scala in Milan, and the Teatro Olimpico in Vicenza, a remarkable Renaissance theatre. Highlights include Verdi's I due Foscari, Rossini's Sparkling Le Comte d'Ori, and Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. We'll also be at La Scala for an important opening night when Australians Simone Young and Nicole Carr make their house debut. And of course, there's Italy in the autumn to enjoy, from the waterways of Venice to the vineyards of the Veneto. Visit Limelight Arts Travel's website today for a full itinerary and booking information.
1: I'm Peter Rose, editor of ABR, and I wanted to let you know about the 2024 tour of the Adelaide Festival and Writers' Week, which ABR will present with our commercial partner academy travel. I'll be co-leading the tour with Christopher Menz, a former director of the Art Gallery of South Australia. Join us for nine days of concerts and performances, guided tours of museums and galleries, plus sessions at Writers Week, The Odd Restaurant, and ABR's unique brand of conversation and conviviality. Full details are available from the academy travel website. See you in Adelaide. This week on the ABR podcast, we hear from leading defamation scholar, David Rolfe, on the recent proceedings in the federal court relating to the reputation of Ben Robert Smith, a decorated soldier and Victoria Cross recipient. In dismissing the defamation proceedings, Earlier this month, the court found that investigative reports by three leading newspapers into alleged abuses and crimes performed by Robert Smith in Afghanistan were substantially true, and that the reporting of them was in the public interest. Rolfe gives his account of these proceedings, noting that the, quote, evidence was factually complex, even if the legal issues were straightforward. David Rolfe is a professor at the University of Sydney's Faculty of Law and the author of several books. They include Reputation, Celebrity and Defamation Law and Defamation Law. Here is David Rolfe with an article titled Self-Inflicted Wounds, a Vindication of Investigative Journalism, which will appear in the July issue of ABR.
2: Just as Anthony Pesanko's dismissal of Ben Robert Smith's defamation proceedings against a trio of former Fairfax massheads, The Age, The Canberra Times, and The Sydney Morning Herald, was a comprehensive victory for those newspapers. It was a vindication of their serious investigative journalism on matters of high public interest. And it was a devastating blow to the reputation of Robert Smith. The stakes in this litigation were high. On one side was a highly decorated soldier... A Victoria Cross recipient, a person of high reputation in a country in which the Anzac tradition is memorialized and valorized. On the other side was an exercise of the freedom of the press to expose real or alleged crimes and abuses of power. At the center of the dispute were allegations made against Robert Smith in a series of newspaper articles from June 2018 of the utmost seriousness. He was accused of being a murderer, a war criminal, bullying, and engaging in domestic violence. In response to those publications, Robert Smith elected to sue the newspapers and their journalists. The articles themselves and then the subsequent defamation trial may form the beginning of a reckoning with the truth of what happened during Australia's involvement in the war in Afghanistan. Extremely serious findings were made in the 2020 Brereton Report, but at the time of writing, no criminal charges have yet been laid in response to them. The findings against Robert Smith may increase the political pressure for charges to be laid against him or others in relation to their conduct in Afghanistan. In the meantime, his defamation trial served, in significant respects, as a de facto war crimes trial. This was obviously undesirable, but it was an inevitable consequence of Robert Smith suing upon these allegations. The trial was long, occupying more than a hundred days of hearings and was protracted due to COVID related interruptions. The proceedings were aggressively contested. More than 40 witnesses gave evidence in the case. There were multiple interlocutory judgments. The final judgment when it was handed down in early June was the 41st one in the proceedings. The evidence was factually complex. Ultimately though, the legal issues were straightforward. This was due to the defenses pleaded by the newspapers. The principal defence relied upon by the publishers was truth. Truth is a complete defence to defamation. The principal basis for this is that a person is only entitled to protect the reputation they deserve. If a person has enjoyed a high reputation undeservedly and a publisher tells the truth about that person, defamation law does not regard that person's reputation as damaged. Rather, the person's reputation is recalibrated down to the level at which it always should have been. This is, of course, precisely what happened to Robert Smith. There were two variants of the truth defence relied on by the publishers in the case. The first was the straightforward defence of truth. Robert Smith had pleaded 14 imputations arising from the articles. The newspapers were required to establish the substantial truth of each one of them in order to have a complete defence of truth. The standard is substantial accuracy, not strict or absolute accuracy. So minor errors of detail will not defeat the defence if the allegation is proved to be true in substance. Also, given that this was a civil proceeding, not a criminal trial, the standard of proof was on the balance of probabilities, not beyond reasonable doubt. However, the seriousness of the allegations necessarily had to inform the cogency of the evidence Justice Bezenko required to be actually persuaded that the allegations against Robert Smith were more probably than not true. This principle is known at common law as the brigandshaw standard after an influential 1938 High Court of Australia decision. The newspapers were able to justify all but three of Robert Smith's pleaded imputations to defend the remaining three imputations. They had to rely upon the statutory defense of contextual truth. Contextual truth is a fallback defense. It allows a defendant to have a complete defence if the substantially true allegations about the plaintiff outweigh the harm done to the plaintiff's reputation by the false allegations. Here, given the number and gravity of the allegations the newspapers had proved to be true, Justice Bazanko readily found that the two undefended imputations of domestic violence and one undefended imputation of threatening a soldier would not further damage Robert Smith's reputation. By this stage, Robert Smith's reputation had been so diminished by the truth of what had been published about him that no further harm was done to his reputation. The truth defence in this case worked. Had it not succeeded, the likely damages for Robert Smith, in addition to the legal costs, would have been crippling for the newspapers. Investigative journalism is expensive and resource-intensive to undertake, but serves the vital public interest of holding power to account and informing the public about what is occurring. Its costs are compounded by the risk of defamation. This risk has to be managed pre-publication, and if that fails, has to be dealt with through defamation litigation, which is extremely costly. The estimated cost of the Robert Smith's trial is $25 million. Media outlets have long agitated for greater protections to facilitate public interest journalism. In doing so, they are seeking at once to advance the public interest, but also, it should be frankly acknowledged, their own commercial interests. These proceedings were conducted under the National Uniform Defamation laws prior to the commencement of potentially significant reforms to them. From mid-2021 across Australia, except in the Northern Territory and Western Australia, the first stage of these reforms has come into effect. They include a reform that media outlets have been seeking for many years, a public interest offence to defamation. This defence closes a gap in the common law and brings Australian defamation law closer to the position in the United Kingdom, Canada and New Zealand. The contours of the principal defences to defamation, truth, privilege and comment, were settled in the 19th century. As they developed, courts decided against recognising a broad-based defence for publication to the world at large on matters of public interest. Legislatures introduced various forms of statutory protections directed at providing a measure of protection for such publications. The focus of defences like statutory qualified privilege and the new public interest defence is on the journalists. To establish a defence of statutory qualified privilege, the defendant has to establish the reasonableness of their conduct in the circumstances of publication. The public interest defence requires the defendant to have a reasonable belief that the publication of the matter was in the public interest. The effect of the newspapers relying solely on defences of truth in the Robert Smith case was that the quality of their journalism was not the focus of the trial. Had they pleaded the defence of statutory qualified privilege, the reasonableness of their journalist's conduct would have been closely scrutinised over the course of the trial. Instead, by relying on truth, the intense focus of the trial was on Robert Smith's conduct. Were the allegations the newspapers published about him true? It was a risky strategy for the newspaper, but it worked in this case. However, media outlets should not always have to run such a high risk in order to undertake serious investigative journalism on matters of public interest. It is important to be clear about what the case decided. Clearly, it was not a criminal prosecution. There were no charges and no conviction. The case did not concern Robert Smith's liberty, but what can be lawfully said about him. Robert Smith himself put his reputation in issue. He asked a court to determine whether it was defamatory to say of him that he was a murderer, a war criminal and a bully. A court found that those allegations were true. Those findings were not provisional. They were final determinations following a full hearing of the evidence. There may or may not be an appeal, and any such appeal may or may not be successful. All of that is in the future and is contingent. The possibility of a successful appeal does not detract from the fact that Justice Bozanko's judgment finally determines the issues in the case and what can now lawfully be said about Robert Smith. Sometimes allegations are so serious and so publicly made that a person may think that they have no choice but to sue for defamation. But ultimately, suing for defamation is a choice and a risky one, as Robert Smith learned publicly and to his great cost. The reputational harm ultimately done to Robert Smith was self-inflicted.
0: Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.